So friends, today I'm preaching on Noah and the Flood. And um, you, every week as we've come before the text in Genesis, I like sit there as I'm preparing my office thinking, whose idea was it to preach through Genesis? I don't have a mirror in my office because that would be helpful for answering that question. Um, Scott and I really sensed when we sat down, um, who's our church planning pastor, Cool and Gatta, when we sat down and just prayed through this year that, hey, we want to wrestle with the tough stuff. And I felt like this week, I didn't think you could get tougher than where we've been, but then I was proven wrong. So I need help today. So would you join with me as, as we just pray? So gracious God, I believe your word is good. I believe it is filled with life. Lord, I thank you for these letters from home, these love letters from home. They call us not just to know a story, but to know a God. Holy Spirit, we need you right now. Deepen our hunger. Open our ears. Bring clarity to my confusion. Bring truth amidst the many words we're about to hear today. God, I pray for transformation. Life-altering transformation. Eternities transformed. Transform me. Transform us. Less of me, more of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hated maths in school. I hated maths in school. Can I get an Amen. I mean, we're a weird blend of a different bunch of different traditions. So the Presbyterians are looking at all the rest of the Pentecostals in the room going, he's talking to you guys. There's this sense, I hated maths in school. Some of you are like, amen. Now, on that note, do we have any maths teachers in the room? Yeah, we've got one on projection down the back. I didn't know you taught maths, Mrs. Howe. Okay, fantastic. That's changed my opinion of you a little bit. <laughs> There's this sense, right, where you have a, like, a special grace to teach mathematics because there are this subset of kids who loved maths and then there's the other 99% of the population. But, but now so I know some of you are going to come talk to me about that afterwards. Please email me at beckhow at church.nu. There's this, there's this moment, right? The reason why we don't like maths is because maths teachers will know this. You always ask this question. In the middle of algebra, when you're like x equals a plus 5,000 minus to the root of 3 or whatever, and you go, um, excuse me, how on earth am I going to use this in real life? And then, yeah, everyone's like, yeah. And maths teacher's like, if only you knew the truth. And then you leave school and you go to buy apples and you remember that, that apple thing of like, if someone has five apples and gives you three, how many do they have left? You realize the world actually runs on numbers. This stuff's incredibly important. One of the things I hated the most about maths was problem solving because I'm actually pretty good at memorizing stuff. So if you tell me something, I can tell it back to you. I can, if you give me a formula, um, you know, I can remember the formula and tell you back. So, Michael, how do you find uh, the surface area of a triangle? Well, that's easy. It's a, a squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Like most of you hope. Is that right? <laughs> no, that's how you find a side. Anyway, it's hypotenuse. It's something. Here's the point. I remembered stuff. Here's the problem. I didn't know how to apply it. So I get it. It's actually beautiful for the analogy. Got like a math student down the back. He's like, wrong. So I get into the problem solving thing. And I'd be like, holy smokes. They don't want me to just tell them what the formula was. They want me to work this stuff out. Now, the, the reason why problem solving exams are so important, because life is filled with problems. No one goes to the grocery store or to your financial planner. They know, what's the formula for this? 
No, no, no. There's this expectation that you'd understand. See, not only is life filled with problems that we have to solve mathematically, it's also filled with problems that we have to solve in every area. In fact, life seems to be one long problem-solving exam, which is a horrible nightmare for all those who hated problem-solving. When you come to the real world, we don't have a choice. We have to solve problems. Because I don't know about you, but the world I live in is deeply problematic. The world you live in is deeply problematic. There are people who have walked into this room today, and you do have mathematical problems. There are stuff with your finances you're trying to balance out. Some of you have relational problems. You're trying to solve these things that are weighing heavy on you. Some of us have walked into this room today, and the problem isn't exterior, it's internal. And you want to know, how do I solve the problem of what's going on in here? Boy, these are good questions. And I I think this question of how do I solve the problem of the world is one which at some stage most people come up against. Because the truth is, friends, you do not have to be very smart to admit the world is problematic. There is stuff that is wrong with the world. And this question of how do we solve the problem of what is broken in the world is central to what we call a worldview. Now, if you have been here for the last four weeks, you will have heard us talk about worldviews. Turn the person next to you and say, you have a worldview. No one clicked when they did theirs. That's fine. It's okay that you shortened it. You have a worldview. Now, for those who have come in late, what is a worldview? A worldview is something that every person... Every person, whether they're atheist, Hindu, Muslim, or Christian, has a lens through which they view the world. What the problem is, is that so many of us don't question what our worldview is. We just assume it. And a couple, many years ago, guys actually sat down and worked out what are the questions that form everyone's worldview. The first question is, what is the problem with the world? The second, sorry, not as what is the problem with the world. The first question is, where did everything come from? Everyone's worldview has an answer to this, even if it's nowhere. It just was. That's the answer. The next question was the purpose of humanity. Most worldviews have an understanding of this. Now, the third question is, what went wrong? Acknowledging the fact that something isn't right. And in the book of Genesis, what we actually see is that the book of Genesis, sometimes we get lost trying to, well, is Genesis scientifically correct? It's actually not the point of Genesis. Well, is Genesis historically accurate? It's actually not the point of Genesis. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's not science. And I'm not saying that there's not history. It's just not the overwhelming reason why Genesis was written. Genesis was written as an apologetic narrative to form the people of Israel to see the world as the way God created them to see it. In Genesis 1, where did everything come from? We see everything was created from God who brought order out of chaos. If you missed that week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Week number two was Daniel Pambrook spoke about the idea of what is the purpose of humanity? And this comes from the Imago Day in Genesis chapter 2, week 3. We talked about, okay, great. So God intended us to flourish and to thrive. What the heck went wrong? And then we explored that for two weeks. And Anna explored it even further with the story of Cain and Abel, where the sin and selfishness introduced in the Garden of Eden becomes generational and starts to actually infringe and crouch at the door of everybody's heart. And then we reach this natural next question, which is, okay, so we worked out the world is broken. How do we solve the problem? And this is such a helpful question for framing why and how we approach the narrative of the flood. You can't understand Noah and the ark without knowing Genesis 1 to 5. 
It doesn't make sense. It, it, it's, it's problematic. It's traumatic even. Genesis 6 to 9, the story of Noah and the ark, only makes sense if you've actually spent time unpacking Genesis 1 to 5. So if you haven't been there, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast because we've done deep work the last couple of weeks to set ourselves up to understand the narrative. Too often we read the Bible in isolation when it's meant to be read in context. And sometimes what we end up doing with Noah and the ark, because it's so uncomfortable, we kind of desensitize it. We make it palatable. We, we put it in cartoon form. And we're like, well, it probably wasn't that bad. You know, everyone got to swim a little bit and then Noah got to hang out with animals on the ark and, and I'm sure that the lions didn't eat the elephants so there was no problems there and everyone just got along. Now, this is helpful because this is how we kind of teach it in children's church for good reason. Because the actual story, when you read it, man, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's confronting. In fact, if you're new to church, we've been reading through the Bible this year. We're actually up to the end part of Exodus at the moment. We're in week, and finishing off week chapter 6 um, this week. It's a beautiful time. But when we got to Genesis chapter 6, we, some of us have been a part of these WhatsApp groups, which I'd encourage you to join if you're not already a part of it. And this question came out of why on this is This is hard. This is horrible. God floods the earth. And we should be uncomfortable. The purpose of the Bible is not to make you comfortable. The purpose of Scripture isn't to make you feel like it's a nice, rosy story. Truth is rarely comfortable. So how do we respond? Well, different people have responded in different ways. A Dutch man, a couple years ago, spent $6 million building a life-size version of the ark in Europe. Cost him $6 million. And you might be like, well, how big is a life-size version of the ark? 137 meters long. 23 meters wide and 11.5 meters tall. That cost him $6 million. He just got a bunch of teachers, probably math teachers, together, and they all built it, not even carpenters. They, just, they were inspired one year. Then recently, a guy named Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis actually wanted to uh, you know, trump him in the effort. And in Kentucky, spent $100 million building a life-size version of the ark. Now, I don't want to today talk about wise use of finances too much, although that could be a topic of, subject, of conversation. But what we see here is why would they feel the need to build life-size versions of the ark? When these guys were asked the question, they answered, oh, it's because we want people to know it's true so that they might believe in God. Think through that logic. They wanted to build a massive ark costing millions and millions of dollars so that people would know that it's true because if you believe that God flooded the earth and killed a lot of things, then your natural next conclusive step would be, now I want to believe in God. I think that there's a problem there. Because I don't think what the Bible's asking us to answer is, did this happen? Do I believe God could have flooded the whole world? Yes, I do. Do I believe he's powerful enough to do it? Yes, I do. Do I believe he did it? I don't believe that's the point of the text. I don't believe it's the main driving force of the text. So I'm actually not going to spend today trying to justify did this happen or not happen because it would be a waste of time around what God is actually wanting to teach us here. There's something deeper. Because anyone who hears the story of Noah doesn't ask so much, did it happen? The question they ask is, why? Why? It's far more important. Why is this in here at all? Like, that's horrible. And so too, we should respond with this. What we need to recognize is that the story of Noah and the Ark, this story is Walter Brueggemann, or as we've come to know him affectionately as the Brugs, says, this story is not concerned. That's always funnier in my head than you guys give it permission for. 
I'm like, oh, they'll laugh at this. And whenever you do, I get crushed inside. Whenever you don't. <laughs> this story is not concerned with historical data, but with the strange things which happen in the heart of God that decisively affect creation. With equal firmness, we must deny that this is a myth expressed in Israel just as it is in every other ancient culture. What's he saying here? He's saying the point of this text is not, was this historically true? That, that, that might be in there, and that might actually have happened. So it's, but that's not the point. But the point also is not to wipe it away and be like, oh, it's a myth, and that's okay. Like, it's just a nice little myth. No, 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 that's not what we're saying at all. You see, the book of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1 to 11, was written as an apologetic defense during a time that was not this time. The Bible was always written to a certain people in a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain context. And the book of Genesis was written to the, book, to the people, to the Hebrew people. Now, at that time, the Hebrew people were surrounded not by science, not by atheism, but by pagan religions. And what you find is that at the time of writing the flood narrative, most other religions had a flood narrative in their religious texts. This is so important. So you look at the Babylonians, who back then had what was known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh is a flood narrative where the gods flood the earth because they don't care about humanity and they react in that way. You also have the Akkadians who have uh, the epic of, I think it's Atahanish. And in Atahanish, you, you have this sense of the gods once again getting really annoyed with humanity so they just wipe them out. And so in a moment where other religions are depicting gods who don't care, we have the Hebrew faith who also writes a flood narrative. But this God is different. This God doesn't do what other gods do. And when you understand that this is a comparative story, not written in a vacuum, but written in a big context, you start to see that this is the Hebrew people explaining to the Hebrew people who God is, why he can be trusted, and what his character is like. This is pivotal. Because it helps us actually work through the why behind the what of the story. See, when we take on the narrative on its own, it offends us, and so it should. But when we take the narrative as written as part of a wider story in a wider context, and we start to recognize, oh, there's a reason for this. Because here's what I want to argue. The flood narrative ultimately is seeking to prove this thing. God is intent on the flourishing of his creation. God is intent on the flourishing of his creation. That whenever he acts, he's not acting against his creation, but he's acting for his creation. You might be like, that doesn't make sense with a God who literally wipes everything out. So come with me for a brief moment, and I'm going to explain how we get there. Now, how are we going to walk through the flood narrative? Before I get there, let me just say this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, last time I preached, someone hooked up and goes, hey, pastor, I just want to say thank you so much. That was an amazing lecture today. <laughs> couple of notes. Um, I never intend these to be lectures. When someone says that, I'm like, oh no, what I'm hearing is I struggle to stay awake. <laughs> someone literally did it after the next service, last service as well. They're like, oh, a nice lecture. I'm like, dude, do you know what you're doing to my heart? We're doing some work here, friends. We're doing some work in actually recognizing that we need to understand the biblical narrative. And it is a little bit denser, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming with us. And it's harder, but I believe the end result will be better. So 
in this sermon, come with me, as we go into the flood narrative. Now, we could spend a long time. Scott and I were texting last night in our prep, and we were like, dude, we could spend 10 weeks in this story. He's like, yes, let's not do that. But, but we're going to spend a day, like, like the next you know, 15 or so minutes. So I've broken it up into scenes, and we're not going to go verse by verse because it would just take too long, and you would fall asleep, and you may never come back. So instead, we're going to break it up into these five scenes, starting with scene number one. And in scene number one, we see the broken world and the grieving God. In scene number one, we, we, we step into Genesis chapter six. Now, we could start in Genesis chapter six, verse one, but that's going to leave you with more questions around Nephilim, angels, and relationships with the angelic people. So I won't go there, not because it's not important. It's just a black hole we don't need to go down today. We're going to start in Genesis chapter six, verse five, where we see an accurate description and a setting of the scene. Genesis chapter six, verse five, we read this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Everyone say wickedness. Yeah, it's not a nice word. The Lord saw that there was wickedness of the human race and had become across the earth. What is happening here? What I want to challenge you to do is, is not to weaken what is meant by wickedness. So often our... Our horror at the story comes from the fact that we assume it wasn't that bad. Like when we think of wickedness, we're like, oh, you know, I've been wicked. I've had a little bit of chocolate on my ice cream every now and again, and I was a little bit naughty. That's not wickedness. It might be, and if that's the case, stop. But what is meant by wickedness? I think we're going to hear this. There was evil in the heart of man. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You should allow your imagination to go into a world where not some thoughts, but every thought was only evil all the time. That is a horrific world. I won't even mention the names of the things that we should start suggesting was taking place. This is not a nice scene. This is not a world any of us would want to live in. So don't run to defend it. Because if it went, when even one of those things would happen in our current world on the news or in the media, we rise up in anger and horror. Imagine if it was all the people all the time. That's an important thing to understand so we can know and understand God's reaction. In verse 6, we read the reaction of God to the state of the world. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, when we read through this, this was the most problematic verse for a lot of people. I've had a lot of conversations this week being like, how can God regret this? The, the insinuation is that God looks down on the earth and goes, I should never have made you. And I don't know if that's what happens. See, when we hear the word regret, we think about, man, I really regret having that ice cream last night, right? Keeping the ice cream narrative going. What are you saying then? You were saying, if I could go back knowing what I know now, I wouldn't eat the ice cream, I'd eat the celery because of how I see this whole thing playing out, right? That's, that's how we understand regret. That's actually not a helpful understanding. We've got to recognize the Bible's written in ancient Hebrew. It was translated to English because not many of you speak ancient Hebrew, not many of me included, speak ancient Hebrew for accessibility, but the English language is a clumsy language. See, the word neham 
The word translated to regret is far deeper than just, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. That's not what God's feeling right now. To nahum something is to be sorry, console oneself, repent, regret, comfort, or be comforted. Let me explain like this. If you are a parent of teenagers, you know what it means to nahum. Now, what am I saying there? That if you've got teenagers, you're like, I regret having you. No, of course not. But there is that moment. I was a youth pastor, so I know like 5% of what you go through. There's like that moment when they do that thing, and then you're overwhelmed by a sense of, not, not regret, but, oh, why are you doing this? Even go as bad as it gets, right? What do you feel when that happens? It's never, I wish I didn't have you. It's, I wish you didn't do this. This is what God is feeling. So important. That God is grieved by wickedness. See how his first response is not righteous anger? It's not wrath. What is it? It's hurt. It's grief. This is a beautiful God that we are witnessing right now. This is a God that we can relate to and know. Why? Because you see, we were reminded God doesn't take, as Andy Patton says, God doesn't take pleasure in the flood. Rather, Genesis highlights how the wickedness unleashed by the fall caused him sorrow and grief. God made the earth to be a place where humanity could flourish. But instead, they turned it into a theater of violence and disaster. And God's heart was broken. Why should this comfort us? Because we see a God who responds emotionally. Responds, not reacts. Christians believe that time is linear and that God stands outside of time and He can see its beginning and He can also see its end. And we can't fully understand that because of the sovereignty of God, but the Bible attests to this being true. But what we also find in this is that God is not this far-off deistic you know, being, being like, work it out, everyone. I know how it ends. It's all going to be okay. God's not removed and emotionally void of a response. What happens is that even though he knows how the flood finishes, even though he knows where the story ends in Revelation, what does he do back in Genesis chapter 6? He doesn't just watch the story. He steps into time and responds. I'm grieved by what's happening right now. Why is this comforting? Because God knows how your suffering ends. God's know, God knows how the problem's worked out. God knows how you make it through the trouble. But he doesn't sit there and going, Cheer up, buddy. I know, it's going to be fine. He steps in and he grieves. This is what we see with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. What does Jesus do? Even though he knows he's about to say, hey, look, Lazarus, come out. Jesus wept. Not because he didn't know what happens next, but because our God is not some void of feeling God. He steps in and he's not emotionally reactive. He's emotionally responsive. He grieves, and this should comfort us. Why? Why does God grieve this? I want to return for a moment to an analogy I used a couple of weeks ago. This is your first week, and you're wondering, can Michael play guitar? The answer is a firm no. Michael can't play guitar. So why is he picking it up? Because we talked about what sin was, and sin is taking something that someone else has made and using it for your own selfish means. For instance, if I took this guitar, knowing that it was made to create music, but because I can't play, I'm like, but I can play cricket and I use this to play cricket, I'll be using something that was created for beauty for my own selfish pleasure, ruining its intended purpose. And this is what sin does, friends. 
But in this moment, what we see is not a Genesis 3 narrative where some people are eating fruit and God's like, wish you didn't do that. We see people who choose to play cricket with guitars and then turn those guitars on each other and beat each other to death. And in that moment, the guitar maker, the great creator of all things, responds with utter grief that his instruments of beauty would be used as instruments of destruction. And in this moment, don't step into moral authority right now. Don't assume God's place and go, well, I would have done it differently. How wicked would it have needed to get for you to be okay with what happens next? How wicked? How bad? And are you not broken? Are you not fallible? Is not God good and trustworthy and faithful? Should we not trust that? If he deems that it was so wicked, there must have been a reason for it. A guy named Hamilton says this, God's decision to destroy what is to destroy what is virtually self-destroyed or self-destroying already. The trajectory is not heading good. Oh, but Michael, maybe humanity might have righted itself. Point to me in history when this has taken place. When God leaves man alone and goes, hey guys, work it out, and we've done that. You won't, because you can't, because we can't. This is the problem. God is grieved by wickedness and injustice, and we should thank God for this, because he will not tolerate his good creation being used for wicked ends, and either should we. So what happens next is that he finds a man named Noah, a man who's described as blameless and righteous, and he makes a covenant with him, which is a relational promise. And this is important, because in this moment, we see a difference between all other narratives. In other narratives, the gods threaten to flood the earth, but it's done against humanity. In one narrative, one of the reasons, one of the epics of the other religions, the reason why God floods the earth, the gods, not God, floods the earth, is because they find humanity annoying and noisy. So they want to wipe them out. But another narrative, they're just doing it out of severity and judgment because they're just like, we just don't, we're just tired, we're sick of this. Only in the Hebrew narrative does God not only work against man, but God partners with man. To save him. Only in the Hebrew narrative. This is why it's so important to recognize we're juxtaposing here. They're writing saying, your gods hate humanity. Our God hates wickedness, but he's looking to save humanity where it is good. This is a powerful apologetic for the, for the Hebrew and Israeli God. We read this, that God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with you and your family and a bunch of animals. Why is God saying this? You see, Genesis describes the flood as what's about to happen is the decreation of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, what does God do with the waters? Yes, great. That was a little bit of a hard question, so I'll give you the answer. He separates them. God separated, separates the waters and creates the heaven and the earth, right? He separates the waters. In the narrative of the flood, what do we see God do with the waters? Brings them back together. This is an act of decreation. This is an act of winding back time. It's a reset button. This is decreation of the world. The earth sinks back into the chaotic waters that God cleared away on page one of the Bible in the ark. God carries Noah's family through the flood unharmed to start afresh in a world returned to innocence. Is a new beginning and a new chance to have a different end. Friends, when you take the question of did this happen off the table and you start asking why and what is God doing here, the story becomes rich in its meaning and understanding. It becomes about something great about knowing the character of God and the intent of God, that God is always trying to not move against creation, but for creation. And we see this in his salvation of Noah. 
In Genesis chapter 7, we see the floods come, the waters decreate the world, the chaos returns and overcomes the order, but the order remains and is protected in an ark. And on this ark, we see Noah for 40 days and 40 nights. We're not going to talk about crows or doves, for those of you who have read it today. Not because animals aren't important. They're just, it's another black hole. We don't need to go down. We're not going to talk about, was it two by two or was it seven by seven or we don't know how many animals came in. Also not crucial to the story, understanding where God is leading us today. But what is important is how God describes what he does next with Noah. After 40 days and 40 nights, God floods the whole earth. And in that moment, something happens. There is a beautiful statement. But God remembered Noah. Now, what does this mean? When I first read this, I'm like, well, God, what were you doing? Like, were you playing ping pong with Gabriel? And you're like, oh, Noah. That's right. I'll be right back. Hold my place. Hey, buddy, I'm still around. I'm sorry about all the water. Let's deal with this. And I think when we, when we look at it like that, what we actually do is we're weakening God again. We're bringing him down to our understanding. A better way to understand this would be to phrase it as such, that it's not God remembering Noah having forgot him. Because you don't need to forget someone to be able to remember them. My grandfather is a Vietnam vet. He's passed away now. But every year, uh, I remember him at Anzac Day. The rest of the year, I haven't willfully forgotten him. When you say to someone, let's say you meet someone, you're like, hey, Hey, Peter, how are you? I will remember your name. When you say I will remember your name, you aren't insinuating, I'm probably going to forget, but I'll, yeah, I'm sure it'll come back at some stage. No, no, it's a promise of continual thought, right? That next time I meet you, I will know you. So when it says God remembered Noah, why is this so important? Because in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the flood, in the midst of everything that was ordered, being undone and uncreated, and Noah torn, torn and thrown around by, by the chaos and the consequence of indecision and sin. In that moment, there is a promise. God remembers you. And this is good news because someone in this room feels forgotten by God because of the chaotic circumstances of their life. But God doesn't forget God saying he remembered is not saying, whoops, it's a promise that those he has made a covenant with are written on his heart, are, are, are in his mind and in his hand at all times. Someone in this room needs to know right now, God hasn't forgotten. He remembers you and he remembers his promise. That's what the whole Bible points towards. The right when humanity thinks that God was a liar, that God wasn't true, God rocks up just as he said he would. So what does he do? He remembers Noah and he pushes back the waters and the ark goes to rest on a mountain known as Ararat. What do we do with that? Do we then go to look for a mountain named Ararat and wondering, is that where the ark is? Friends, I've got to be honest. If we found an ark on, mountain, on the mountain of Ararat, it wouldn't deepen my understanding of this story. If we don't find an ark on the mount of Ararat, it doesn't weaken my understanding of this story. Because either of those things aren't the reason why I love this story. I love this story because what it teaches me about God, that as he pushes back the waters and as he breathes life, what he does is Noah comes out of the ark. And in Genesis chapter 9, we see this beautiful next part of the story where God recreates and makes a new covenant. What do I mean by God recreates? I don't know if you remember Genesis chapter 1, but in Genesis chapter 1, he says something to Adam that he also says to Noah. 
In Genesis 9 verse 1, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is God doing here? I've recreated. Hey, let's flourish. Let's have another go. Let's, let's go again. Go forth and enjoy. Be my image in the world, Noah. This is such a beautiful understanding that God is committed to the flourishing of his world. He's not moving against creation, but for creation. You want to know who moves against creation? Us. And it grieves the heart of God. So what happens next is so beautiful because what God does is God in a moment makes a covenant with Noah. And a covenant is a relational promise. When God makes a covenant with the people, it's God saying, no matter what you do, I will always. No matter what you do, I will always. It's not a contract. You better because I will. No, it's no matter what you do, I will always. And we need to know this. this is the first time in the Bible God makes a covenant with man. But God continues to make covenants throughout the Old Testament and we have had our covenant made with us as well. A promise from God. Whenever you read the word covenant in the Bible, you need to recognize it's God taking something incredibly seriously. He will not break it and he never has. What is the covenant that God makes with man? God puts, God puts a bow in the clouds. Why? God makes an irreversible commitment that the post-flood, post-chaos situation is decisively different in extraordinary resolve God now says, never again. God says, never again. What is this moment? Why is it important? And why should it offer us comfort? Because if we read Genesis 6, verse 9, 6 to 9, as an answer to the question, how do we solve the problem of sin? The honest truth is, the flood didn't work. The flood didn't work. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read Genesis chapter 9, Noah praises God. God puts a bow in the clouds and, and makes a covenant with him. And then the very next thing Noah goes and does is wickedness. He stuffs up. He looks at a piece of fruit. Sounds similar to another couple that I know. And in deception, he turns it into alcohol, which is nothing wrong with alcohol per se, but when it's abused... And he abuses it. He becomes drunk. He forsakes his role as an image of God and his role as a father of his family. And in a moment, he descends into wickedness. And what we find is even Noah, this righteous, blameless man, who the whole weight of recreation was on his shoulders, even he wasn't good enough. And we find the story left asking a question. Okay, God, so flooding the thing didn't work. What's next? And what you actually find in the rest of the Old Testament is God leading us to show how there's only one option. So to do that, He has to take you off the table, humanity off the table. What do I mean by that? So God's proven that even if He preserves one human person, the problem wasn't with Noah being surrounded by bad people. The problem isn't outside influence, friends. The problem is in the heart. It's not them, it's me. And so, so we then go, well, God, just tell us exactly what you want and we'll just do that. Like, give us, give us something to follow. So in the book of Exodus, what do we see God do? God gives them the law. It says, just follow this law and you will live and flourish. And what do we see God, what do we see the Israelites do? They fail, they fail, they fail. So God, just give us a leader. Give us a leader like Joshua and Moses and we'll do it well. So God gives them judges to lead the nation through times of trial. And what do they do? Do they rise? No, they fall. No, oh God, well, every other nation has a king. 
So give us a king. And if you give us a king, we'll solve the problems of the world. So he gives them kings. And kings are wicked. And they destroy the nation. So they go, oh God, we just need to hear your voice clearer. So he gives them prophets. And they take the prophets and they kill them. And what you find is the Old Testament is God revealing to humanity. No matter how many ways or chances he gives us, we will always get it wrong. We will always get it wrong. But the promise that we have is when we get it wrong, never again will He strike us down in a flood. So what is His plan? What is He going to do? Well, friends, we don't need any king. We need the king. We don't need any prophet. We need the prophet. We don't need any judge. We need the judge. We don't need another law or rules or things to live up to. We need someone who can live up to them on our behalf. This is why in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, whilst you were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for you. How come He didn't come before the flood? Because we probably would have had this excuse. Well, you never gave us a chance to prove you. We couldn't. So you went and sacrificed your son. You want us to all be amazed at that. But we never, we, you never gave us an option. So God gives humanity. We have a written history and evidence that we cannot do this. And here is how God, God points back in the, the story of the flood. God points to Jesus. Let me show you this. This is so beautiful. Because what we read in the Bible is not, I have set my rainbow in the cloud. What does God say? I set my, I set my bow. A bow is a weapon. Bow and arrow. Now, when you look at this bow, it's pointing in a direction. This is symbolic. Where is the bow pointing away from? This is not a true question. The earth. But here's the question. Where's the bow pointing towards? Heaven. Never again will my judgment of your wickedness result in my wiping out of all things. Never again. But there will come a judgment and someone will have to pay. Someone will step in. And next time, it will be me. God points the bow of His righteous judgment at Himself. In the book of Noah, we see God starting to say, no matter what happens over the next thousands of years, you will stumble, you'll fall again and again. But you'll look back at the flood and you'll remember, I knew, I knew, and so I provided. I knew and I provided and I sent my son, the better fulfillment of the law, the better judge, the better king, the better prophet, the better priest, the right Abraham, the right Adam, the right Noah, the better ark that you might be saved. Jesus actually refers to this. I didn't realize this, but I studied this. He actually says that when he goes to the cross, he will be baptized into waters. What's he referring? He's referring to this understanding that with Jesus, the wicked was spared and the righteous one sank beneath the waters of death. Unlike Noah, Jesus did not escape the flood alive. The waters of death rose and drowned him. Who was Jesus, friends? He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a king. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a judge. He was God. Noah survived the flood by taking shelter in an ark. But in Jesus' life, death and resurrection, Jesus became the ark, became the shelter, not just for His own family, but for all creation. We have the privilege, the blessing of reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. 
that we can see the fullness of the revelation. Do you want to know what the answer to your problem is? Now, if your, your problem is external, I'm going to talk about your internal problem. You want to know what the answer is? It's not coming to church. Someone's like, oh, thank goodness. I'm done. All right, I'm out. It's not reading your Bible. It's not praying. It's not trying harder. It's not doing more. It's not working out what you should and shouldn't do. It's not understanding. It's not, it's not, you know, because all these things are good, but they're all behavior modification. Let me tell you what I've learned. If you think you can, you can't. You will stumble and you will fall. But here's the good news. God doesn't ask you. God doesn't ask you to solve your own problem. This is beautiful. He says, bring the broken guitar back to me. I've done everything that needs to be done. I can. That problem of your heart, I can. You can't. He did. Friends, only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. God is committed to the flourishing of His creation. He doesn't move against you. He is moving for you. Will you come and know Jesus Christ, the better Noah, the better Ark, the better Abraham, our rightful king, our rightful judge, our rightful prophet, our rightful friend? This is the one we serve. Would you pray with me? So God, we, we just pause just for a brief moment. God, I'm so thankful for the honesty guys like Heath Father who we just admit like, this week's been rough I can I can say amen to that God I don't know why you keep coming for me for us why you keep loving us in, in the midst of our brokenness and our shame I sense there's someone in this room right now who like you think following God is about you being good enough. The only distinguishing characteristic of everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ is the humble revelation that they are broken and lost. That's it. And I pray what you've heard today is not a God that says you better perform, but a God says, I step in on your behalf. So right now, I believe there's Christians and there's people who are yet to know Christ who know you walked in here with problems in your heart today, with sin, with selfishness, and you're wondering, how does it get better? How does it change? How do I rewrite the narrative? You let go of the pen and you let God step into the story. So I want to ask boldly right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, there is a moment here where you can repent, you can turn, you can believe. Say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I choose to follow you. Lead me, lead me. Not into behavior modification, but into spiritual transformation. And I said the same thing in the first service. I'm gonna ask you to do something bold right now because I think there's a bunch of us in this room who wanna join me in standing right now and saying, I need Jesus. That's you today, right across this room. Only section leaders and myself are just going to be looking so we can pray for you. What I want to do, I want to ask you to be bold. I would love you to stand wherever you are right now. Some of you have already started standing. 
before I even ask. God is on the move. God is on the move. And if, and if that's you, I don't want you to sit back down. Just join me. Open up your hands before God. Hey, someone next to you is standing and you know them. Could you stand with them? Stand behind them? Just say, you're not standing alone right now. This is you mature Christians. Just go stand with someone. Just stand around them. They're not standing alone. They're making a public declaration. Just want to, some God's doing some stuff right now. Thank you, Jesus. Some people are still standing to see if we can just continue to move. That'd be great. Father, right now in this place, you are drawing people back to yourself. I'm going to wait a moment longer. I just, it's not past yet. Just, just God, God wants to move. If that's you, I just encourage you to stand with us today. I wonder if we would all stand in solidarity with those who are standing right now. Would you stand with me? And I just want to ask um, that everyone, you just we're going to pray with people who are standing right now. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray to God. I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to leave wickedness behind. I need you to solve my problem. Wash me clean. Lead me into new life. Teach me to follow you. As my Lord, my Savior, my friend. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, right now we pray for people who just stood across this room and we declare, Lord, you are enough. Your grace is enough that your salvation still runs sick in this place today, that we join in with heaven and thanking God that you still call people home. You still call me home. Father, I thank you so much that you are the better ark and the better way forward. Cement in eternity what you have started here today in Jesus' name. We glorify you. Lead us forward. We pray this in your mighty precious name.